Father, what a privilege it is to know Jesus. What a joy it is to be his friend, to be his spiritual sibling, to be his servant, to be the object of his love and affection. Lord, we want to we know that joy this morning. There are so many things that stand in the way, even, even during a time like Christmas where, where joy is such a, such a buzzword. Lord, we ask that you would show us true joy this morning, true Christmas spirit, if you will, in Christ and only in Christ so that as we celebrate Christmas this season and even just going forward, Lord, our, our lives would be full of the joy of knowing and following Jesus. We ask for this, Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen. So where's your Christmas spirit? During the Christmas season, we are bombarded with advertisements promising joy, selling not only a product, but selling joy. We see advertisements on TV of a brand new Lexus sitting in somebody's driveway that a wife, to her ever-loving joy and surprise, um, has been gifted by her husband. And we're told, essentially, if you have this vehicle, vehicle, you can experience the same thing she's experiencing. We see Santa Claus driving a Mercedes-Benz through the snowy mountains and hoping that he will drive it right up to our front steps. You have the family all wearing matching pajamas from Target and smiling ear to ear, and you wives are sitting on the couch thinking, our family should do that. And your husband's sitting next to you thinking, I hope my wife didn't see that. <laughs> you have Hershey Kisses playing Jingle Bells. Every kiss begins with K and Ford winning truck of the year again somehow. All trying to sell you not only a product, but sell you the joy that you can have with that product if you only possess it yourself. If you buy this thing, then you will be fulfilled and have joy. But as it always does, the Christmas season ends, tomorrow comes and goes, and life shows back up, and your marriage is still rocky, and your parents' health is still shaky, and you spent a little too much money on Christmas presents, and your bank account now shows that. Where's your Christmas spirit now? See, true joy, lasting joy, true Christmas spirit, if you will, comes not from all of our circumstances going exactly the way that we want them to, but ultimately it comes from knowing and following 
Jesus. Everybody believe that? Okay. How often do you feel the kind of joy that a person would have in having a personal relationship, not with the President of the United States, not with the CEO of Amazon, but with the King of the universe? How much joy do you have knowing that you're not only going to get Christmas presents this year, but that you have an eternal inheritance bought and paid for you by Jesus Christ that you get to receive someday? How much joy really do you have from knowing and following Jesus? So we know that joy only comes through him, but sometimes that's easier to believe than actually practice. And if we're honest, often because of the sum of the circumstances in life, we struggle with this kind of joy. And my goal this morning, as we look at Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 35, and the story of Simeon, is to put Jesus on display as who he truly is, as the long-awaited Savior and splitter. I'll explain what splitter means when we get there. But the long-awaited Savior and splitter, so that we can know him and so that we can follow him and experience true, lasting joy. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 35. Now, at this point... Jesus has been born. He has been greeted and welcomed by the host of angels and the shepherds. Mary and Joseph have circumcised him on the eighth day. And now they are taking him up to the temple to fulfill their obligations to the Mosaic law, to dedicate their child to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice for Mary's purification after having given birth. However, totally unbeknownst to them, God was going to send a few more messengers after the angels to welcome and to greet this young Messiah. The first is a man named Simeon. The second is an elderly woman, a prophetess named Anna. And our focus this morning is going to be on the man Simeon. And it's through his life and testimony that we see Jesus for who he really is and can experience that true joy. So look with me at Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. 
And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We're going to see three ways how knowing and following Jesus brings joy. Those three ways are through a man, Simeon, a song, Jesus as Savior, and a prophecy, Jesus as Splitter. A man, a song, and a prophecy. Let's begin with the man, Simeon, back in verse 25. All that Luke really tells us about this man is two things. Number one, he was from Jerusalem. Number two, this was a righteous and devout man. Now, when we think of righteous and devout people, we might think of somebody who's been a Christian for a long time, somebody who has been a member of their church for a long time, somebody who has served faithfully without complaining, without seeking recognition. They have humbly served Christ in their families and in their churches for years. This is the kind of person Simeon was. He was righteous in his character. He was a godly man, and he was devout. He was committed to his religion. He was committed to following God by obeying the Mosaic law. Now, notice what Simeon is spoken of as doing here. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the the comforting of Israel. Now, this was another way of saying he was waiting for Messiah, because Messiah was the one who was going to bring this consolation, this comfort, this peace. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, in the wake of the fall of humanity into sin and the curse, in the midst of God giving curses to Adam and Eve and the serpent, He plants a promise, and he tells them that from Eve is going to come a seed, and this seed was going to crush the head of the serpent, the deceiver, the one who had deceived Adam and Eve and caused this trouble. But as you move through the early pages of Genesis, You see the world plunging deeper and deeper and deeper into sin and depravity and darkness, and there is no seed to be found. It gets so bad that God essentially has to start, has to press the restart button with a man named Noah and his family. And through Noah, and through Noah's son Shem, would come a man named Abraham, or Abram. And in Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abram, I am going to give you a seed. I am going to give you offspring. I am going to make you a nation. And and as that nation, you are going to be a blessing to all the other nations. He's going to give Abram a seed. Now that nation, as we all know, is and was the nation of Israel. 
And in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God calls Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was supposed to be God's representative to the world to spread his blessing to it. But continuing on through the story of the Old Testament, which is essentially the story of God's dealings with the nation of Israel, you see over and over and over again how that nation fails to live up to what God had called them to do. They sinned and they rebelled over and over and over again, leading them into rank idolatry and rejection of their God. And it's in the midst of this rebellion, which would eventually end in exile, that God sends a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, God sends a message through this prophet. And he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God promises through Isaiah one who would come and who would bring peace. And the faithful in Israel heard that promise and they waited. And they waited. And they waited. And for centuries, the fulfillment of that promise did not come to pass. Isaiah himself didn't even see it come to pass. Until a young man and a young woman walk up the steps into the temple carrying a baby. And as they walk in, there's a man in the temple courtyard, probably pacing, about to be driven crazy, because God told him that he would not see death until he saw the Messiah. And in fact, as we read back in Luke chapter 2, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. See, Simeon was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. He had been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And God, through the Spirit, had told him, had given him this promise And on this day, he led Simeon up into the temple. And as he's pacing around, as he's wondering, who is going to be this one? When am I going to get to see him? He looks up and he sees this young man and woman walking in 
and he sees the baby in Mary's arms. And immediately, he knows that's him. That's the one we've been waiting for. That's the seed. That's the Messiah. That's the Redeemer. That's the Deliverer. That's the Prince of Peace. And so without even thinking or hesitating, he runs over to Mary and Joseph. Think your kids tomorrow morning running to the Christmas tree. He runs over to Mary and Joseph, and he doesn't even ask if he can hold their baby. Ma'am, can I please hold your baby? No, he takes Jesus into his arms and immediately holds him up, and he worships God. He blesses God. I think it would be an understatement to say that Simeon was feeling joy in this moment, don't you? See, there's a lesson here about joy. That true, lasting joy begins with longing for Jesus. It begins with wanting Jesus. It begins with wanting to know him. Wanting to embrace him. So if you want to have true joy, do you long for Jesus this way? Ever? Obviously there are seasons where it's harder. But do you see a pattern in your heart of of a desire for Jesus like Simeon had? Does that show in your life? Does your prayer life reflect that? Does your time in the word reflect that? Does your obedience to him reflect that? See, we will not experience true joy unless our heart's first priority is fixed on Jesus. The first way we must know Jesus in order to experience joy is to long for him as the long-awaited Messiah and Prince of Peace. Secondly, though, we must know Jesus as Savior. Look with me again at verse 29 at a song. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Upon seeing Jesus, Simeon immediately associates, associates him with salvation. And this is ultimately what Jesus came to do. So Jesus did not come just to provide a, a good moral example of living a good life. Jesus did not come to throw out a few one-liners to make people feel better about themselves. Jesus came to save. He himself makes this point later on in Luke, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus says himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Paul also acknowledges this same reality in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, when he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 
What saying is he talking about? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus came into the world to save. Did he come into the world to save the Jews? Yes. But not only the Jews, the Gentiles also. As you see in verse 31, this salvation was prepared in the presence of all peoples throughout history. And through the prophets and through the promises God gave to his people, he was unveiling his plan as we even just saw a peek at earlier beginning in Genesis. He was unveiling his plan for how he was going to save his people. But notice how it says salvation came to the Gentiles in verse 32. A light for revelation. When Jesus came, he revealed God's plan to the Gentiles. We see this very clearly actually in the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 10. If you'll turn there with me, we almost did this for our scripture reading this morning. I'm glad we didn't. Scott. Peter speaking to the first Gentiles to hear the good news in the church age in the book of Acts. Beginning in chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And then he says this in verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. God had revealed in sending Jesus that salvation was by faith in him, to all those who believe in his name. He sent Jesus who said, there is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He showed the world that salvation was through faith in him. He turned the spiritual light on in a world of darkness so that the world could be saved. But he not only revealed God's plan of salvation to the Gentiles, he also came to bring glory to Israel. Jesus came to bring glory to Israel. So Jesus was a Jew. He was 100% God, 100% man. As a man, he was an ethnic Jew from the tribe of Judah. 
And being that the Savior of the world would come through the nation of Israel affords the nation of Israel a certain level of honor and respect. Now, that nation today is in rebellion against God, and they have been ever since they crucified their Messiah. But regardless, Jesus still was a Jew. And there's an honor that we ought to have for the Jewish people simply because of that fact. We ought to pray for their repentance. We ought to pray for their revival, pray for their safety right now. But there's an honor that we ought to have for the Jewish people. And a Christian should never be anti-Semitic, should never support any sort of expression of hatred toward the Jewish people. Jesus came to bring salvation for the glory of Israel, in part at least. And we ought to honor them for that. Jesus came to save. When Jesus came, he turned the light on and brought salvation. So do you know how you can experience true joy and peace? You have to know Jesus as Savior. And that starts with, with acknowledging that you need a Savior, right? Acknowledging that you are a sinner who is completely helpless on your own to save yourself. And then looking to the cross where Jesus died and to the empty tomb where he rose from the dead and accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished so that you could be saved and trusting in that. That's, what, that's where knowing Jesus as Savior begins. And that's where true and lasting joy and peace begin. As a dear friend reminded me this last week, Jesus wasn't born for the cradle. He was born for the cross. Jesus came to save. Are you experiencing persecution for your faith? That persecution won't last forever. Uh, this world is not your home. Jesus has bought your eternity in heaven. You can have joy. Are you suffering from a physical sickness? That sickness will not have the final say in your life because Jesus has saved you. And in heaven, that sickness won't be there. And you can have joy not only then, but now, knowing that that is the reality. Are you discouraged that you keep sinning in the same ways over and over and over again? You have these besetting sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he broke the power of sin over your life. So you don't have to sin. Jesus saved you from the power of sin in your life. So you actually can grow. See, there, there's joy in knowing Jesus as the Savior. And that's what Simeon reminds us of in his song. In verse 33, you see Mary and Joseph's response. They, their, their jaws hit the floor. They're amazed. They marvel at everything that was said about him. And so Simeon responds in verses 34 through 35 with a prophecy. And we see Jesus the splitter. Beginning in verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, 
Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus splits and divides. He not only brings together and unites, but he splits and divides. You see a great example of this actually towards the end of the book of Luke with a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was actually a member of the Sanhedrin, the council who condemned Christ to death. But we read in Luke chapter 23, verse 50, that he was, a member, he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God, and he offered his family tomb up to bury Jesus in. So you have Joseph who rose, and the Sanhedrin fell. Jesus was the difference. Peter and the apostles rose. Judas fell. Jesus was the difference. He was the dividing line. Yet Saul of Tarsus later on in Acts chapter 9 rose, becoming Paul. The rest of the Jews who persecuted him along his ministry missionary journeys fell. Jesus was the dividing line. This is not only true for Jews, though. Many of you even have family members who you have strained relationships with, and you know why. Jesus is ultimately the reason. You follow him, and they don't. You may not have the same relationship with your coworkers that they have with each other, and you know why. Jesus is ultimately the difference. You follow him and they don't. Jesus is the greatest dividing line in human history. There are two kinds of people in the world, those who accept Jesus and those who reject him. While this can be discouraging at first glance, let me actually provide a word of encouragement from this. Number one, notice the language that's used of falling and rising. Those who follow Jesus are described as what? Rising. There's significance in that. No matter the pushback or the opposition you might face for following Jesus, you will be vindicated at some point. You are on the right side of history. You will Rise. Take joy in that. Secondly, this is what Jesus came for. Notice the language. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. This is part of the plan. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 39, we read this. Do not think that I have come, this is Jesus speaking, to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. But then he finishes in verse 39. He says this, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This splitting, this dividing is a part of the plan. 
And you can take joy knowing that, and joy knowing that God sees, God knows, and God cares, and he will take care of you no matter what you end up having to lose, end up having to sacrifice. But notice again that Jesus is not only appointed for the fall and rising of many, but for a sign. And this sign is Jesus himself. And notice it's a sign that is opposed. This is the first hint we get in the Gospel of Luke, that things are not going to be all sunshine and rainbows for Jesus. That during his ministry, he is going to face opposition, ultimately culminating in his own death. But then he turns his attention to Mary. And he says this to her. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Even Mary, at times, was going to be divided in her soul about Jesus. She loved her son. She was there at his death. But even she would feel the tension. She would sit back, say, as Jesus is in the temple in the Passion Week, and he is taking the Pharisees and the scribes to task. And he's pronouncing seven woes on them. And he's calling them all sorts of names. And you can just imagine Mary standing back saying, what are you doing? This is going to get you killed, Jesus. This is not good. Maybe just apologize and move on. Maybe don't come back to Jerusalem for a while. Even Mary would feel the tension in her own soul over Jesus. She never rejected him. But she was even split. And then he finishes with the purpose of all of this. Why does Jesus split? Why couldn't God just have sent him kicked the Romans out, brought in the kingdom, and made everybody happy. He tells us in verse 35, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It was so that those who opposed Jesus would show their true colors. It was so that those who opposed God would show their true colors. We see an interesting example of this in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now, great Great crowds accompanied him. Jesus is popular. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, this doesn't mean selling all your possessions, leaving your family, and and moving to a monastery, and being holy. This means that you are willing to sacrifice anything, whatever it takes, for the sake of following Jesus. You are laying your life down. So is waking up early on a Sunday morning to come to church a sacrifice? Jesus calls you to make that sacrifice. 
is asking forgiveness from somebody that you've wronged and laying down your pride a sacrifice, Jesus calls you to make that sacrifice. Is choosing to break up with somebody that you shouldn't be in a relationship with a sacrifice? Jesus calls you to make that sacrifice. Is letting go of trusting in your own good works to save you a sacrifice? Jesus calls you to make that sacrifice. What is that thing for you that's holding you back? That's standing in between you and following Jesus? Jesus calls you to make that sacrifice. You'll either fall or you will rise. You'll either reject him or accept him. Jesus divides so you can't do both. Choose this day. Choose this day. This could be the Christmas where the baby in the manger actually becomes your Lord and Savior. If you'll lay it all down, confess that you're a sinner, acknowledge that you're a sinner, and cast yourself on the mercy of God and Christ on the cross. And then someday you will rise as well. True joy comes from following Jesus even when it costs you. Do you think in heaven we will regret any of the sacrifices that we've had to make to follow Jesus? No. It's worth the sacrifice. It's worth the sacrifice. So where's your Christmas spirit? Do you have the joy that comes from knowing Jesus and following him even the way that Simeon did? If so, praise God, right? Praise God. But if not, or maybe you're in a season where things feel dry spiritually, or maybe you've never felt that joy before, how can you experience it? I've got three ways. Three ways to experience the joy of knowing and following Jesus. Number one, Remember what we've talked about this morning, that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior and splitter of the world. And that if you will follow him and submit your life to him, there's no end to the joy that God could bring. Because of Jesus, you can experience joy and peace that surpasses understanding, not only in heaven, but now. So, so reflect on that. Meditate on that. The gospel is not just something that is for unbelievers. It's for you, believer. The gospel is not only the power to save, but it's the power to sanctify. And it's the power to bring lasting and true joy and peace. You need the gospel still. So remember the gospel. Remember your Savior. Secondly, commit to following him. If there's a sin you need to repent of, then repent of it before God and rest in his forgiveness and grace. If you're anxious, choose to trust the Lord with your problems. If there's a tough decision you need to make, then ask him, ask the Lord for the grace to make that decision and then make that decision. Following him no matter the cost. There is joy in following Jesus even when it hurts. And third, practically, find a way to serve another person. 
I've heard this commercial several times um, just in the last couple of weeks. It's a commercial for therapy. And what they are encouraging people to do is put yourself at the top of your Christmas list this year. And, and Kenzie and I, my wife and I, have talked every time we hear this commercial about how there is no better way to plunge yourself into a fit of depression than to put yourself first in your life. Which, of course, I guess is a good advertising strategy for getting people to come in for therapy, but it's not a good strategy for joy. So find a way to serve somebody else. True joy is found in giving up of yourself for the glory of God for the sake and the good of others. From small ways to big ways, from doing the dishes to helping a family stranded on the side of the road, find a way to serve somebody else. Find a way to serve the hardest people. Maybe it's a family member for you. Maybe it's a coworker. Find a way to serve that person. The easiest way to serve them is pray for them, right? Find practical ways to express love to that person. There is joy and not living for yourself, but for God's glory and the good of other people. See, true Christmas spirit, true joy is found in living for God, living for Christ, and serving him, knowing him and serving him. And my, my prayer is that as Jesus has put on, been put on full display this morning, as the long-awaited Savior and splitter of the world, that the more that we think about this, the more that we reflect on this, the more that we meditate on this, that our joy would rise as Jesus is put on more full and full display. So let's pray to that end. Father, we do just again thank you for our Savior, our Redeemer. And Lord, I ask that this, this Christmas would be a time where we really do reflect on Jesus and that you would be, be kind and allow us to feel the joy that comes from doing that. Lord, there's lots of things that make the Christmas season enjoyable, food, songs, weather, lights, and those things are all wonderful. But help us not to lose sight of Jesus this Christmas season and, and, and going forward. May we take our joy from him. In his name that we pray, amen.